Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season two. In this episode, we discuss the Bamber's farm secretary, the late Barbara Wilson. You may have seen her contributions to several television documentaries, speaking about the actions of Jeremy and her alleged fear of him. However, none of this evidence was in her original statements and what she said about him changed over time. Since Jeremy's trial, Barbara Wilson also gradually expanded on her evidence, especially to the City of London Police in 1991. The assertions she made in these statements and in documentaries are a manipulation of the truth at best, and at worst, simply lies. We also set out how she made serious complaints of fraud to the police against the Eatons, which were ultimately ignored. Barbara Joyce Wilson was employed as Farm Secretary by Neville Bamber, a position she first took up in 1979. Her duties included sorting orders, paying the bills and organising the wages for the farm workers. Between the 12th of September 1985 and the trial, she provided no less than 14 witness statements. Of these statements recorded on the Home Office Holmes Box Index System, two have never been disclosed in any format and four of them have never been disclosed in their original handwritten form. Additionally, evidence which records that information police requested from Barbara was either ignored by the police or was obtained and then hidden. And in addition, as part of this pattern of non-disclosure, we can show that statements had not been taken from a large number of Sheila's friends. Those that were taken had not been typed and only exist in the handwritten form which the defence did not have access to in 1985 and 1986. These statements would have been invaluable to the defence in determining the state of Sheila's mental health at the time. These might have contained evidence supporting that which came from the other sources such as Wilson. For example, a handwritten note was discovered in the 2011 disclosed material which demonstrates how Essex police cherry-picked evidence to suit their agenda. There was a note written by DS Jones which states that he should take a statement from Wilson because she told Anne Eaton that the day prior to the tragedies, Sheila had told her that all people are bad and should be killed. Curiously, this evidence is not in any of the disclosed statements of Wilson, Anne Eaton or DS Jones. This begs the question of why not? Wilson was one of the last people to speak to Neville Bamber. She set out in evidence that at approximately 9.30pm on the 6th of August, the evening prior to the tragedies, she had telephoned the farm to ask Neville about a child's bicycle she had for Sheila Caffell's children, Nicholas and Daniel. She told the police that Neville was not his usual cheerful self during this call, and that he only replied to her with yes and no answers. She was left with a feeling that there was something wrong, and that she may have interrupted an argument. A further time she spoke of bicycles was in relation to June Bamber buying a second-hand cycle for herself during July. Wilson said that when June showed it to her, it was immaculate and looked almost new, and that June was really pleased with her purchase, apart from a squeak it had. Wilson initially said in a statement that June asked Jeremy to have a look at it to make sure it was okay, and Jeremy assured her he was certain it was fine, riding it around the yard making motorbike sounds which made June laugh. Yet, when she later recalled this fun event to the media in a documentary broadcast in November 2013, she now gave this innocent and fun event a sinister twist and said, Mrs Bamber had a bicycle. He, Jeremy, 
got the bicycle and he would ride round and round in circles, intimidating her, trying to knock her with the bicycle. Perhaps it would not have had quite the same dramatic effect or the desired distortion of Jeremy's character for the viewing audience if Wilson had given the true version of events. A further change to her evidence concerns how she felt towards Jeremy and her relationship with him. Since the trial, and in recent documentary programmes, she spoke in detail about her apparent fear of Jeremy, and yet none of her witness statements mention this, until 1991, in a statement she provided to the City of London Police. This is where she gave the impression that her fears were considerable, and that she worried Jeremy would climb through a window of her home and kill her. She said, I thought he would come after me and kill me. I know it's easy to say this now after all these years and after he has been convicted, but it was a very real fear then. However, had there been any truth behind her apparent fears, then why did she not inform Essex police as soon as possible? Why did she say nothing after he had been remanded in custody or voice her fears at the trial? In fact, on the 29th of September 1986, days prior to trial, Barbara Wilson and Jean Buttle, the cleaner at the farm, were interviewed by a representative from Kingsley Napoli solicitors who represented Jeremy, in the presence of Essex police officer DCI Dickinson. Dickinson later went on to conduct an inquiry into the police investigation following the trial. However, during the interviews, he was there in a supervisory capacity. Asked about what she thought about Jeremy and how she had got along with him, she stated that she found Jeremy to be very pleasant, no qualms, always okay with me, probably got on better with him than my own son. He was a likeable, jovial fellow. Now that's quite different to what she said in later years. During the same interview, she was asked specifically how Jeremy got along with his parents. The questions and responses were, question, what about Jeremy and his parents? His father? Answer. Got on like any father and son. The odd disagreement what to do on the farm, not terrible. But putting one's view and then the other, the difference between old and young views, I thought they got on quite well together. Question. What about Jeremy and his mother? Answer. Yes, I think they got on all right. There again, they had their disagreements. Perhaps Jeremy's ways were not as she would wish. Inevitably, different views of the young and old. The solicitor then asked if she had ever heard Jeremy say anything nasty about his parents' sister or the twins, to which she replied, No, only work-wise. Main criticism was against father about the farm. Never heard him say anything bad at all. Question. Nothing like that he hated them? Answer. No. Question. Anything violent towards them? Answer. No. Nothing. It is an unsettling fact that after the trial, her evidence again changed. And in statements given in 1991, she now stated that Jeremy went out of his way to annoy his parents. Why did her evidence change? Why did she not state this in her original statements or at the trial? A further factor to consider in relation to the changes of evidence of Wilson originates from the assertions made in 1991 which were recorded in an officer's report and on a television documentary in 2013 in which she now claimed that Neville had somehow foreseen his death. In her 1991 evidence she said, He made the comment that no one lived forever, to which I replied that I didn't like talking about that. 
but he was being realistic and continued that none of us lasted forever and that would I be able to look after the farm office without him being there. I told him that I would do my best. He asked me if I would be able to work under Jeremy. So far as I was aware, that would be no problem and I would have been able to do so. She continued that in a different conversation, Neville had said that accidents could happen and that as he was a person who went out shooting, he could accidentally get shot. The conversation, together with other things he had said, made me really fear in later weeks and before the killings that he was trying to convey to me his opinion that he was going to die, but in an unnatural way. I thought that it was a very strong possibility that he would be shot. I had the very real impression that he would die by shooting. I didn't think he would shoot himself or that it would be an accident at a shooting party. The only conclusion I could come to was that some other person would shoot him. This completely contradicts evidence she provided in September 1985, in which she described the fact that Neville had recently purchased two plots of land and had plans for the future. She told officers in 1985 that he seemed to be thinking about later in life when he retired. There was no mention whatsoever of any premonition of impending doom, as she argued in 1991 and on the documentary. In fact, her assertion set out quite the opposite in that Neville was a responsible man who was making plans for his retirement from farming life. It is unlikely there was a premonition, and this was simply invented by Wilson in 1991 and expanded upon in later TV programmes and books. For if this was truthful, why did she not tell any of the relatives, or the police in 1985, or the jury in 1986? It appears the City of London police were also selective about the content included in statements, as details of this revelation are only present in an officer's report. We suggest that if Neville Bamber had told an employee such a thing, why did this employee not mention this at trial to assist in the conviction of Jeremy Bamber? Why did Neville not tell anyone else? And why did Wilson not go to the police with this story? on the 7th of August 1985. We will leave you to make your own conclusions about why this story has been intensified for various forms of media. Wilson also failed to mention to Essex Police in 1985 that she had any worries or concerns regarding Neville's health or well-being. Yet from 1991 onwards, she suddenly recalled he was becoming very deep in thought and there came a time about six weeks before he was killed when I thought he looked physically ill, as if he had a heavy weight on his shoulders and all the sparkle had gone out of him. In 2013, she expanded on this even further during a televised interview when she claimed that she had such concerns, stating, For several weeks he looked really drawn and ill. He seemed to stoop and seemed to have the worries of the world on his shoulders. And I asked him what was wrong. I thought perhaps he might have cancer or some bad illness. As we have said, Wilson's concerns over Neville Bamber's health did not appear in any pre-trial witness testimony, nor in the witness testimony of anyone else. This could have been for two very specific reasons. One, it was pure invention by Barbara Wilson for the benefit of the viewing public and any possible financial incentive documentary makers might have offered her, and also for the benefit of the City of London Police. Or, two, 
Could it be that any reference to Neville being ill was edited out of all the pre-trial witness statements as Essex police realised that their argument that Sheila could not have overpowered Neville would be seriously undermined. On the 29th of April 1987, Wilson made a number of serious allegations to DS Jones and DCI Ainsley that Peter Eaton had been stealing money and property belonging to N&J Bamber Limited. Her allegations were cumulative in nature and illustrated a clear propensity for dishonesty on the part of the Eatons. The officer who interviewed Wilson at that time described her as an honest person with no clear agenda against the family. Yet, Essex police never fully investigated her allegations. It is likely that this was to preserve the integrity of key prosecution witnesses who assisted in the conviction of Jeremy Bamber. A document dated 10th of June 1988 written by D.I. Smith, stated the fraud complaint was not acted upon as Jeremy's appeal was pending. The court was entitled to know about these allegations because witnesses' credibility had clearly been at issue for some time, but the defence were unaware of this. Wilson made two additional statements accusing the Eatons of fraud and gave a detailed list of specific examples of theft and false accounting. Essex police negligently ignored the discrepancies detailed between the probate documents and the statement of the estate. On the 13th of May, 1988, Detective Inspector Smith noted in an officer's report, I was instructed that the inquiry should be delayed until after Bamber's appeal, when the matter would again be reviewed. In the same document, DCI case notes, 13 months have now elapsed and I bring this to notice for a decision as to whether the commencement of the Eton investigation should be further delayed. If this situation was to continue, the police may receive criticism for condoning the commission of alleged offences. He goes on. If an executor, Mr Cock, deliberately suppresses or prevents the defrauding of the trust coming to light by inactivity, the police should be wary of appearing to condone such a situation. By the 11th of October 1988, D.S. Bernard, the Beaufleur family liaison officer, was assigned to investigate on behalf of the fraud squad, despite a request from DCI Ainsley that no one involved in the murder investigation should work on the fraud investigation. Owing to deliberate delays in the fraud investigation, when Jeremy lost his 1988 bid to appeal his conviction, he pursued no complaint about the running of N&J Bamber Limited or about Basilcock also lying to the police by stating he was a shareholder of the company. In delaying the investigation, Essex police not only continued to allow the incarceration of an innocent man by failing to expose the lack of credibility of key witnesses, but they also blatantly neglected their duty to investigate alleged fraud. This issue remains unresolved. It is clear that, with the exception of the buried fraud allegations, the evidence of Wilson has been expanded on and has become more poisonous to Jeremy over the course of time. Statements that she got along with him better than her own son and that she had observed a good relationship with Jeremy and his parents as set out in her initial evidence changed considerably over the years. Was this because she would be paid more for her contribution to books and documentary programmes for a negative account of Jeremy? Or because she was, in effect, now working for the Eatons once they took over White House Farm and the rest of the Bambas estate? 
we will let you, the listener, decide. If you want to lend your support to Jeremy Bamber, you can write to him in the UK using the number A5352AC, HM Wakefield, 5 Love Lane, Wakefield, WF29AG, or see our website for details at www.jeremy-bamba.co.uk.